sociologist, producer, and your host. I admit it, I love watching HGTV. I love to guess whether homeowners will love it or list it. I fantasize about house hunting in Costa Rica or Tuscany, and I love to make fun of first-time homebuyers who don't cook but insist on granite countertops and double ovens. I realize it's a whole network, and certainly not the only one, that leaves me with the feeling that everyone but me is living in a dream home of shower rooms and shiplap and open floor plans. I look around my own house and sigh with wanting something more, something bigger. It's a little bit like spending too much time on Facebook, isn't it? Research shows we end up depressed and filled with self-doubt, convinced everyone else is living a more glamorous and joy-filled life than we are. The reality of keeping a roof over our heads is, as we all know, much harder than deciding between hardwood and laminate flooring. America is facing a housing crisis that is profound in both its causes and its implications. Today, I'll talk with Samantha Schuler, CEO of the Community Housing Network in Columbus, Ohio, about the complexities of housing policies and practices and why affordable housing is becoming increasingly scarce. Sam, welcome, and thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, We're really excited to hear what you have to say about housing and about the unique approach that your organization takes. I'm wondering if we can um, start our conversation today by talking about, mm, this is a big one, but the current state of housing in this country. And as we talk about a housing crisis in the United States, what we mean by that. Sure, and thank you for having me. I'm really actually excited to be here. In our country right now, half of half of all American families um, are paying more than 30% of their income towards rent. What, and can yeah. I interrupt here? 30, 30%, as I was growing up and becoming financially aware, 30%, you know, when we had to do calculations and make budgets in high school and all that stuff, that was the maximum that you were to allow uh for spending on housing in order to make your budget come out right yet and that i mean that remains a standard i think for saying whether or not someone is rent burdened and that means they have to pay more of their income towards rent than is um makes financial than is financially sound and so by that measurement uh half of the people who the families that live in the united states are paying more than 30 percent of their income towards rent, so they are rent burdened. And 11 million of those families 
pay um, more than half of their income towards wow. rent, which means they're extremely rent burdened. There's no state in our country where someone earning minimum wage can afford a modest one-bedroom apartment. Most of the country, you would have to work between 60 and 80 hours per week to afford that one-bedroom apartment. So the state of our housing, uh, it's, an, it's a crisis. That's staggering. It is staggering. It's a huge problem. And and I just want to stop and, and kind of repeat that and emphasize it, that that if you work a minimum wage job right now, there's no place in the country you can actually afford an apartment. Correct. And even in places where, um, so they have, t- if you you can, you can do an analysis of what uh, a renter, a typical renter in, a, in an area is earning. And that's usually higher, for example, than minimum wage. Minimum wage is incredibly low across the country. I think in the Midwest, it's $8 an hour is the average minimum wage. But the average renter is making around 13 $14 an hour. The problem is a typical two-bedroom apartment, you need to be making 16 30 an hour to afford that apartment. So even among people who have what one might think of as a decent job above minimum wage, there's still a gap between what they make and how much they can af- how much rent is. That's the biggest issue. Income and rent are um, the issue. The rents are too high and the income's too low. So the so the concept of a living wage, particularly as economists have developed it, uh, and I'm here. I'm contrasting to what policymakers want to say is a living wage. Right. But as economists have done it, they they're really taking into account the cost of housing as a huge factor for why living wages around the country tend to be in the sixteen to eighteen dollar range. Right. Uh, and and again, that's not to live well and take trips uh, right. and drive new cars. That's just to be able to afford the basics. Right, exactly. And then if you think about that, what that means is it's not just leisure, and that's important, but it's also there is no ability to save. There's no ability to build equity. So if you're spending all your money on your expenses – you have no way of investing in your future. And that is bad for the country. You you need people to be saving for lots of reasons, bad for the economy. So even, you know, aside from the fact that you're having people live paycheck to paycheck um, and they're one crisis away from having a real disaster, you're, you're you're, you're losing an opportunity for people to be able to invest in their own future through savings, through 401ks, uh, those sorts of opportunities. Well, how then can renters become owners? Well, I don't know. I don't think they can. Uh, and I think that you see more and more people coming into the renter market for different reasons, partly because ownership is more expensive than renting, but partly because there's a general shift in culture towards ownership and whether it has value. So it, millennials, for example, are less interested in owning. They're more interested in renting. And that may be a chance to look at the American dream. Is ownership an important value that we drive towards? 
But even if we do believe that ownership is an important value, if there are more renters, what's happening is that's putting more pressure on the limited number of rental units. Okay. Uh, so, and in particularly if somebody with high income who might have purchased be a home before, if that person is renting, they're bumping out an opportunity for somebody else to rent that unit. And, and so a, maybe somebody who's got a lower class apartment building is would have rented to the people who have lower income before. They're not doing that anymore because there's somebody with higher income that can rent from them. And so it puts an, an incredible amount of pressure on the supply, which is what's one of the issues. It's causing so many problems with the rents going up and income staying mm-hmm. stagnant. And you, now you have this, this huge housing problem where people simply cannot afford housing and there's not enough units for them. I think it's... Um, I was trying to remember. I think for um, the lowest income levels across the country, there's only 35 units available for every 100 households that need them. So we're 7.4 million short. What you're talking about is a pretty major shift, both both materially in terms of there's just not enough housing, but it's also a shift in our cultural views about housing and, as you were saying, the American dream and home ownership. I'm wondering if if that's a result also of a demographic shift in that you have baby boomers who were the ideal homeowning target before who are now aging and finally finding that maybe home ownership as we get older isn't all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> yeah. I, I think if you look at the demographic shifts, that's exactly what's happening. There's different parts of our population who are renting that didn't rent before. So whether it's baby boomers, whether it's younger people, you just have a ton more um, pressure on or shift from ownership to rental. Some of that even occurred because of the uh, recession. You okay. know, so yeah. you, it, it, it trickles down. So if I can't afford this house, then I go to this A-level apartment or B-level apartment, which means everybody who was in an A-level now has to drop down to the B because the rents went up, right? And it just trickles right. down and it creates a larger and larger group of people that can't afford the rent going up. And there's more of them than there are units available. So, so yes, as we shift into more renting, which we're doing for different reasons, partly demographic choice, the demographics are changing what they choose to live in as housing and partly from economic reasons. All of these things combined are started to create this perfect storm. So the, uh, the housing bubble of the 2000s really contributed yes. to this problem because so many people were so-called owning homes at mortgage rates they really couldn't afford. Right. Losing those homes, where do they go? But again, back into that rental market. They get get foreclosed upon. They don't have great credit. And so they're no longer in in the market for a home. They start to rent. And there's a, there's, it's multifaceted. I would, I got to believe the other issue that's causing this is the investment by, or the, the amount of housing and funding spent on housing, whether it's the federal government, state or local government, has gone uh, down. It may look like it goes up sometimes, but in real terms, in terms of um, is is the amount of money that HUD invested 
in in inflation terms the same as it was years ago no it's in you know it's complicated but it has a lot to do with sequestration and the caps they put on discretionary spending um, in order to make the budget work so if it's mandatory spending that get happens so where do they make all the cuts in the budget it's in that discretionary spending and it's forced cuts through through uh, the sequestration and so you have this again it's contributions of different factors you've got people who more people who want to rent than own you've got more people who have to rent than can own you have way less investment in housing by the government over time <laughs> and all of those things combined are putting in this us in the situation that we're in now as you said a perfect storm correct part of the and and i want to get more into in a moment the the multifaceted nature of the problem but it seems that when we're talking just about housing there's a kind of two-prong problem that has to be tackled and one is the lack of housing units for Mm -hmm. renting and the other is the cost of those units and obviously they're related but do you find that we need to approach those in a sense, as independent issues. And I guess here I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about the notion of affordable housing. Used to be housing that poor people could afford. And now the problem of affordable housing, as you're saying, extends beyond that to to people with jobs. Right. Yes. Uh, I think that is, there are a lot of misconceptions about affordable housing. Okay. But one of the, one of the big ones is about who it is that needs the housing and the profile of a person who is not willing to work and and therefore doesn't have income and that's why in this situation it it just isn't true so if you it really we're talking about working poor we're talking about people who are working sometimes two jobs and making 15, 16 bucks an hour, but they've got a family of four and they cannot afford a two bedroom apartment for that family. And so they're catching another shift just to make ends meet and they're always behind and just holding on, uh, frankly, for dear life. And that means um, they're not spending money, for example, on, let's say, food, good food. They're not spending money on their health care. Um, they may be moving quite often, so their kids aren't staying in the same school system. So they're driving up health care costs. They're driving, um, they're, they're setting up, this is setting up their kids to not have a good outcome, right? Because if you switch right. schools more often, you're more likely to, for example, use drugs to have um, kids before you're ready, Um you're less slight, you're more likely to fall into crime and poverty. So it's driving that cycle of poverty for the future and costing us more money uh, and all of that, those expenses. Um, and so it, you know, it's, uh, it, but to answer your, to get back to your question, it is not a question of a small group of very poor people. It is a, in Ohio, what we consider, um, the United Way did a study called the Alice study, and it looked at what is it that you need to make to really live so mm-hmm. that you are covering all your expenses. And is this anywhere near the federal poverty line? And it's not. It, it's um, 
30 bucks an hour for a family of four, way above the 15 bucks an hour that we're averaging that people make. And that, and that means that 40% of Ohioans are or what they call um, then this Alice group. So it's asset limited. I forget what it stands for. I'll try to think of it. But basically, these are people who are working. These are not people who don't have jobs, but they simply have jobs that do not pay them enough to afford their lives, which is housing, childcare, food, medical, all the basics. So it's not a small number of people, and it's not just a, a super limited class of people that are, you would consider, oh, this is a poverty class. It covers what many people would think of as the middle class. 40% of Ohio um, is in that category. I was going to say, uh, to, to require, I mean, basically you're talking about what truly is a living wage for Ohio. Yeah, exactly. And Ohio, let's face it, one of the advantages of living in the Midwest is that our cost of living compared to coastal communities is really pretty low. Yet still in Ohio, $30 an hour yeah. uh, is the minimum that you need if you're going to have what we consider to be the typical 2.3 kids kind Correct. of family. Exactly. And to, and to have a, um, an opportunity, an equitable, an equitable opportunity to raise your family in a stable, healthy environment right. so that we have a more vibrant community. Um, if 40% of your community doesn't have that opportunity, how do you have a vibrant community? That, that just on its surface, on its face, doesn't seem possible. I don't know if you've seen the cover of Time magazine this week. Uh, in fact, the cover is a woman who says, I work three jobs. I have a master's degree. I work three jobs. I donate plasma. Yeah. I am a teacher. Right. And I think that's, the, for me, the most important um, piece of, of this is we, we've got to let go of the myth of, of the profile of people who are using the, who need the, bene- the government benefits that housing provides, right? So you say government benefit and there's an immediate stereotype. And I think it even goes back to like the welfare state, right? That you're living on the dole. Right. Yeah. When you talk to the people who are in this category, this 40% category, they're exactly the person you just described. They're, they are, they are working harder than anybody else. You can, you know, they're working three jobs. They're selling their plasma. They want good jobs. They, they want to work. They want to be independent and afford to live in a stable environment and raise their kids that way. This isn't a question of people who are just going, oh, here's a program that I can trick and slide through and never, and never work. That's just simply not the truth. And we can talk about class, middle class, lower class, upper class, all of those things. But those are just sort of limiting again. They're, they're going back to a profile because it's assuming that at one time the poverty class was that profile. I would, right. I would guess that if you went back to the pre-Reagan years and interviewed the people in these, this world, they wouldn't present much differently than the people we're talking about today. Um, and that's why I get a little bit uncomfortable about saying, talking about it in terms of class because I think it's unfair to, the, to people who we would describe in the lower income bracket 
as if they were somehow different. That, no, well, now that the middle class is in here, this is a little different. It, it, so I'm not sure that it is, but I will say that it definitely is affecting a lot more people than it used to at higher income levels than it used to. And isn't a critical difference there, and I agree with you in terms of, of we're applying old concepts and old labels that had only minimal meaning in their day that have become completely meaningless. But when we talk about classes and what it means to be in the middle class, we used to think about that as having a college education. Right. Right. And that that was your ticket to the middle class, which meant a level of economic security. Correct. And that you could raise a family and for a very short amount of time, if you were white, it meant you could perhaps raise that family on one income. Right. And certainly minority families never had that ability as readily handed to them, also considering the lack of opportunity structures for education. But today we're seeing that even with the college, the returns to that college education are not what they used to be. Right. Uh, And we know people are getting out of college and they're still looking around going, I got to deliver pizzas. (laughs) Correct. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's plenty of jobs. There's just plenty of high paying jobs. Right. Your college degree doesn't expand how many jobs are in the market that pay you enough to afford your housing, you know, that anymore. I also, I also think that even in the middle class, I think you could consider somebody who didn't have a college degree to be in the middle class in, in the times when we were very strong in terms of um, our manufacturing. Okay. And yeah. so, you know, a, a, I, my family, uh, my dad's family is from Michigan, um, and all of his, every, all of his cousins, and he had, I think there's 133 of them. I would say 90% of them had awesome factory jobs, right? So they went to high school and they got a great job with GM, and the union made sure that they had a, a living wage. And I was going to say, right. and they were union jobs. Yep, they were great union jobs, and they're very, they're very, very proud of those jobs yeah. and proud of the work they did. And they had, they had really the kind of middle-class life you think of where they own their homes, their kids went to good, stable schools, Mm -hmm. they had good vacations, Mm -hmm. they had a great pension, um, they had health insurance, all of the things that um, support having a a vibrant community. So I think it's great that those things were true, but we invested a lot of how we made sure people were taken care of in our employers. We depend on our employers for health care. We depend on our employers for retirement funding. We depend on them for pretty much all of that middle class um, concepts, right? Well, what happens when that's no longer true? And I think that's a little bit of what you're seeing. So now a lot of jobs, they'll make them part-time so they don't have to pay you health insurance, right? right? Which is what millennials are really facing with college degrees. Exactly. That one job still isn't going to give you enough. And there's no pension. It's all 401k, so it's all contributions from your own paycheck, right? So that's right. an incredibly difficult thing for somebody to right. afford. So, so I, I, those are big ideas, right? That's a, those are lots of things to think about. But when you watch that pattern, what I see is, well, if there's not enough jobs 
there's plenty of jobs, but they don't pay enough to support all of these things that peop we know people need to be vibrant. What do we do about that? What's the solution to that? Is it just w watch these communities slowly fall apart? Wait till we get to 70% of Ohio doesn't have a living wage? Where do, where do we finally say, whoa, this our community is in crisis and, and we need to do something about it. We need to shift our priorities and um, and and our vision of, of what we think is important for the people that live in our community, for all of us. To me, 40% is too many. Half of the country not being able to afford their, uh, truly afford their rent is too many. You know, every 11 seconds a family's evicted. 600,000 people in our country are homeless right now. Is You know, where's the tipping point? And why, when we talk about it, does it get it? Does it get uh, lumped into uh, just one more social service program, one more person right. looking for a handout, right. one more and, bad investment? And you talk about housing, and most people want to hit the snooze button yep. until it affects you. Yeah. Well, and, and tell me if my perception is correct or incorrect, that it's it's not just people who are, who maybe have experience with the welfare system mm -hmm. uh, or people who experience chronic homelessness, but that the people who are who are living in rental housing or for that matter, who are paying mortgages because of the lack of job security and wage security more than that, that we are all or most of us are just a couple of paychecks or a health crisis away from yeah. losing right. what what we just take for granted, which is the four walls around us. Correct. Yeah. And what I would, what I think is most frustrating, is somebody who is in housing every day, and I understand that it's complicated. It's frustrating is this idea that we can't afford it because we're already paying for it. Because you yeah. see it in other impacts. So why is healthcare so expensive? Why do we have such high healthcare costs? Because we have so many people who can't afford it, so they put it off, so it gets worse, and so now it's catastrophic and expensive. And that cat that is the catastrophic moment that they can't afford, lose their jobs, lose their housing. So what frustrates me is the idea that we're not already paying for it. And that if you could that housing is so essential to catching it upstream. What do I mean? If you have affordable housing, you're less likely to fall into all these other downstream negative benefits, which means we're less likely to have to spend a lot of money on, an, on a, a crisis, right? So, so that's the part I find the most frustrating is that it's, a, it's, it's not just that it is the most humane solution to a lot of the issues that we see it's also the most economically sensible one so it it's a hard and a head solution and i and that to me is what i find frustrating is that 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 we can't get that um to be adopted by more people and embraced and to get that policy to to be truly robust and and a, a value in every community it's frustrating is that uh, when you say we can't get more people to understand that, is that the general public doesn't understand that? Is that that voters don't understand it? Or is it as uh, policymakers 
I think it's basically legislators are are so set apart from the rest of us by by economic considerations that they don't get it. Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of all of those things. And I think it's also housing is very complicated to explain. It's hard to put into an elevator speech. <laughs> so food, food's easy right. to explain. Food banks do very well in terms of fundraising and people get it and they're supportive. Uh, it Housing is just, a, a, it's complicated and it's tied up with so multifaceted in terms of even culturally. I mean, you mentioned race, and when you talk about race and housing, it's got its own story that's it's incredibly difficult, actually, to read about and learn about. Then you talk about other... Uh, you, you could take housing, and it so, has so many different pieces and so many different stories to it and so many different ways to be described that it's just so hard to get people to just focus and understand how it's a great policy because it's it's just not easy to describe and it gets tied up with so many of these other stereotypes so many other difficult stories I, we just have a lot of trouble when we go to talk to funders about it getting them to to just be able to focus on the one piece of it that makes sense and then you pull the price tag out <laughs> And it's sort of like game over. Because on its face, when you just look at the price tag to really do housing well, it looks like a huge number. There's a sticker shock exactly. effect there. And because we're so federalized, and I mean that with a small F, right? So right. Uh, if, I, if, if something is spent by HUD, but it saves Medicaid money, or something spent by Medicaid and it saves HUD money, it's not like they share. If I uh, save money for the jails by spending the mental health's money, the jails don't give some money back. They, you know, the savings aren't mm-hmm. easy to describe and show. So you take all of that together, and it's just, it's just, a, it's just, um, it's difficult to just to get people there. It's, <laughs> if that's helpful. We're going to take a short break sure. now, and we'll be back and talk about this such a myriad, uh, complex connection what do I want to say a web um, that surrounds housing in this country it can be overwhelming but we're gonna try still to pull that web apart so we can get a better understanding we'll be back in a moment what they tell us how they compel us I know what it's like to wonder what is true in the speeches the Ignorant preachers No one is like to be resented to In the brackish Great unknowns I'm left to question what I saw We'd love to hear from you. If you have feedback, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, email us at voices at heartlandwoman.com with Samantha Schuler, CEO of the Community Housing Network. Sam, we started uh, in our last segment to talk about issues of race, and I would like also to talk about gender and the complexities of 
talking about housing and economics when you, you know, that, well, I guess we're starting from the standpoint of it is not a level playing field. And that when we're talking about anything related to economics uh, and, and housing certainly being central to that, that race and gender are really critical factors that have to be addressed uh, right. if we really want to understand the scope of the problem and hopefully solutions then that come from that. Can you talk some about that, both um, in terms of the research, but also in your experience sure. and the work that you do? Sure. With women, I think the particular issue that, that I've seen is they're much less likely to reach out for social services because they are very worried they'll lose custody of their kids, mm -hmm. which means that they um, stay in a domestic violence situation in order to hold on to their kids and also their housing. So the the women who end up in homelessness, the leading cause of that is domestic violence, right? They finally have to leave the house because the domestic violence has escalated past the point where they can manage it. And so I think because it's so difficult, though, even if you go into the system, you know, so you you leave your home and now you're homeless and the system doesn't have a unit for you or one that works for whatever reason, you're much more likely than to return to your abuser because there is no solution for you in the in the homeless system because there's just not a unit for you. And so for women, the housing crisis becomes a domestic violence issue as well. And that's, that's a impacts their children obviously dramatically that's the place i see how um, gender plays into housing policy with race uh there's a there's a book that was released i forget a couple years ago the color of law and it mm -hmm. walks through uh the intentional racist housing policies that our country embraced for years, and years <laughs> forever, and years. yeah, yeah, uh, and it's hard to um, overdramatize how impactful that is. So, if you look at uh, African American African American wealth compared to white wealth, uh, it, it's like one to ten, and and a huge part of that is there's no ability to build up equity. If you can't, if you can't buy a house and you can't get a loan, you have, you have no asset to, mm -hmm. in, to, to, to either use for additional income or pass on to somebody or to build wealth. And so if you look at the people who are homeless, 65% uh, of them are black, and they only make up 12.4% of the population. And there's, there's just there's a direct correlation to this is because of racism this is because of institutional racism so and our that, housing and crisis racism. is also a, a product of our racist policies okay it's just that simple and I, I just wanted to say here that 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 racism isn't merely economic uh, in terms of we know that people of color tend to make lower wages. Correct. It is, you're saying that 
it goes beyond that and that our housing policies per se are racist and really founded upon an in, an intentional racism. We know, for example, the, the process of redlining, right. of, of segregating neighborhoods. Right. Redlining was huge, hugely impactful in this. And so what is that? Redlining was literally um, the federal government sitting down with a map and drawing lines around neighborhoods based on their their segregation at the time. So if this if they would draw this is a white neighborhood, this is a black neighborhood, this is a neighborhood that is uh, threatening to become mixed. Okay, so we're going to draw some red lines and then you can these programs that we support, so these mortgages for example that we're going to insure so that people can get a really great rate and purchase a house. Mm-hmm. They're only going to be allowed to be used in this area that we marked for white people. That that isn't um, that isn't uh, well. We had a policy that ended up having a racial <laughs> it's impact. It's not coincidental. Accidentally, sorry about that. No, uh-huh. this was I, I intentionally. We want to benefit white people, and that didn't just happen for a day or a year or a decade, decades of that. Uh, so if, if you think of th- my suburb, I live in um, Bexley, Ohio, so it's a little suburb on the east side of Columbus, and we have railroad tracks that mm-hmm. separate us um, on two different sides. And so I once was, uh, <laughs> our family homeless shelter here in town is, is uh, just over the tracks from Bexley. So at Christmas, I took my son, who's about 10 at the time, and I explained redlining to him before we left, and we'd go over to, to do uh, give a a donation and we're driving back and I said now look all around you look at these this neighborhood do you see how lots of it's boarded up how all of its rental how really run down this neighborhood is and he's like yeah I'm like now watch what happens when we drive over the railroad tracks and when you do that it feels like you just drove into Oz <laughs> because when you drive over those railroad tracks into Bexley it's gorgeous there are tree there are tree lined streets there's no trash they're single-family homes with perfect little lawns. It's Mayberry. And he actually went, oh, wow. So that's real. And if I'm not mistaken... And that's it, redlining. So, yeah. yeah. It, it used to be, in, in the neighborhood that you're talking about, I'm very familiar with that a bridge going across those tracks actually had f- flower pots lining it as as an introduction as a as a welcome to to Oz yeah when you is is uh they don't have a bridge but they have built um uh walls like brick walls that are sort of um entry points right and they say they've got a huge landscaping um aspect to them and they say welcome to Bexley <laughs> it's really just like it, and it's it's striking in the other railroad tracks the same way you you come under the railroad tracks from Broad Street from the west side, and it is just like a completely different neighborhood. It, I'm really struck as you're describing the the walls there that the image that came into my head was really of a gated community, right. and and very much we're talking about that that socially, it it is a gated community Correct. based on race. Yeah, so I grew up in Columbus and went to Columbus Public Schools, was part of the busing 
Uh, so one of the things that Columbus had was a, a court order that required the schools to desegregate mm -hmm. through busing. What people did in response to that was simply get more suburban to separate into suburbs and build their own schools. Because if you're in a separate school district, you're not in the Columbus order, and you don't have to get bused to a different school district. So, so, so we respond to those things. As a, you know, racism is a huge problem in in housing, and it's a huge problem in how and where we live. It's and it then causes all sorts of other effects because once you suburbanize and separate out your schools, how does somebody now get a great education if they're living in a school district? that doesn't have uh, any diversity or the investment that we can put into those schools that, when we live in the suburbs. So my son's school is incredible, but we also pay an income tax to supplement what comes through the real estate tax because we suburbanized ourselves and we have very high incomes in our su right. suburb. And as long as public education is paid for through local property values, ultimately. We see even the kinds of educations that are accessible through so-called public schools, in fact, are in intensely racially divided. Right. Right. So if you can't afford um, an apartment building, an apartment unit in the non-suburban area, you certainly aren't going to be able to afford it in a suburban area, even if in the number of rentals in those suburban areas is incredibly low because it's it, uh, it there's no um, inclusionary zoning. This is mm -hmm. these are single family um, suburbs, right? And so just finding a rental unit is tough. So you're just compounding. You're just compounding the issues um, that people face when they can't afford their housing, and you're particularly compounding it for people of color because they're already it's already been so disadvantaged by our housing policies. It, it, Housing is, is really a place where we should um, be completely uh, despondent over how it impacts people of color. Uh, it, it's, it's the, the numbers are staggering and they're real and you cannot ignore them. And it's been a, a, a few years since I've looked at the data, but the trend, at least that we were seeing that I suspect is still there, is that we are, to even to talk about people of color as a uniform category when we look at housing can be deceptive because the, the categories that still are incredibly um, segregated in terms of housing are between whites and African Americans that other kinds of racial minorities have been much more integrated into white neighborhoods than black Americans. Yeah, and you know, uh, I know because we serve people who are homeless, I have a better yeah. handle on how many people end up um, in our homeless communities. That, and so how, inter how integrated neighborhoods are for other people of color who aren't um, African-American or black, you know, I'm not as familiar with, but that wouldn't surprise me either. Yeah. What aspects of life are affected by where we live? All outcomes, not I, just I was going to say everything, yeah. right? Right. So your zip code is the number one indicator of your social, you know, what will determine 
the kind of life you have? What sort of health do you have? What sort of um, quality of life do you have? You know, what kind of wealth do you accumulate? Your quality of life is predicted simply by what zip code you were born in. It's, it's hugely important what community a person grows up in, whether they're going to have a good quality of life. And that would be schools that would be uh, yeah. interface with the judicial system. Correct. Right. So if you so you start with um, are you living in an older rundown house? So have you been okay. exposed to exposed to lead based paint? Oh, okay. Yeah. Are you going to have asthma because of where you live? Um, are you more likely to live in a, a community where you're going to experience trauma because it it's mm -hmm. got a concentration of crime. Mm -hmm. um, are you going to be going to a good school? Are you going to be going to the same school? Um, so if you live in a, a bad neighborhood, your parents or family is more likely to move to try to get away from it. Um, or they're more likely to have an experience with eviction. So you have a lot more moves. So now you're going to a different school. It's interrupting the continuity of your education. It's disrupting relationships you had with peers and with trusted teachers. So you have instability in your schools. You have higher health care needs. You also aren't as close to or have an easy way to get to great food. So you're eating bad food, and that is food a deserts, huge then. problem. Right. Sounds so small. Okay, so you're not eating good food. It's huge. Food and what we consume has a huge impact on our development and our health. Uh, and not just do we grow tall enough, do we grow strong enough, but um, it, it, imp it impacts our ability to have good immune systems. It impacts our how our brains develop. It impacts are we able to concentrate. It, the, the food the food we eat that's um, cheap is full of sugar, fat, and salt, and it's killing us. <laughs> right. And that is what you end up eating more likely when you live in a, an economically distressed area. So, so you, you could you know you go on and on about what what did it, what what does it mean to live in a bad neighborhood? Um, does it affect also people's employment and their employment opportunities? Yes, because if you can't get to your job, mm. if you don't have good transportation to get to your job, um, you can't keep your job. You just can't. And we, have, we don't have great transportation. And neighborhoods get isolated. So this is, I think, also where suburban life comes into play. If all the good jobs are being developed outside of the inner city, and you don't have a way to get on a bus to get to right. that job, you are going to be late one day. You're going to miss a day. How do you get back to your kid? Let's say your kid's sick and you're supposed to go pick them up. How do you get on a bus and go get, pick up your kid? Right? It just it just compounds itself. And and so, and, and I I think we underestimate the trauma that people experience living in terrible neighborhoods. As a child, to be afraid you're going to be shot yeah. is traumatic. And I will tell you that my son does not think he's going to ride his bike to his friend's house and get shot. Us, if, he, if we lived in a different neighborhood and we were a different race, he would. And how does it, that's, that definitely impacts a person's ability to function over time. It's enormous. It's enormous. Um, we worry a lot about school shootings. I worry about them, but I wonder why we don't worry more about the shootings that happen every single day in horrible neighborhoods.
they're both crisis, but we pay attention to one more than the other. And as a child, to just even witness violence around you is to be victimized Correct. by that violence. Correct. And, you know, poverty is already a difficult thing to climb out of, but when you have no experience of something else, how do you aspire to something else? I And I often think of the intangibles of experiencing beauty. Correct. And, and even just experiencing community. Yes. Um, being safe in your neighborhood means you're experiencing, you're going outside and experiencing your community. You're connecting with the people that you live with and next to. Now, I believe this still happens in all neighborhoods, but I have to imagine that um, the safety of that neighborhood impacts how how enriching that can be. And we know that, it, I mean, poor neighborhoods, people still, in, in the face of horrible conditions and horrible odds still make still want community and still work very hard to make community but it's as though the odds are stacked against them i know that even the you know if we look at transportation and and urban development planning starting in the 1950s Black neighborhoods were not considered real neighborhoods. And so if you wanted to put a highway extending from the inner city to the airport, you could put it through that neighborhood. And the the cost of that to a community, the decimation to a community, wasn't ever considered. Right, right. Because they were poor minority communities. Correct. I mean any freeway a federal freeway a u.s route freeway and there i can't think of one that went through an affluent neighborhood and uh, we see that in cities all around the country right yep you were talking about for women experiencing domestic violence but but really we're talking about anybody who faces homelessness you were talking about entering the system right Uh, the image i had in my head immediately was a kind of um (sighs) enormous impersonal lose your sense of self and lose power and control over yourself kind of entity when you talk about the system could you say a little bit about what that system is and what it looks like the homeless system sure so the way that um, our homeless system works here is if you uh, are at risk of homelessness or are experiencing homelessness, there, there's, a, there's a telephone. You, can, you actually have a hotline you can call, and that hotline's job is to try to figure out a solution for you. And to the extent that they can help divert you from the shelter, that's what they do. So they ask questions like, does there family or friends you can stay with, and things like that. And when they can't do that for you, you you can go to the homeless shelter and they are um, designed to accommodate your family so they do have space for you and your children and then in that process you get assessed to your to what are your needs if you're episodically homeless so what episodically homeless means 
you've had a certain event in your life that has caused you to lose your housing, but you have not experienced this on a chronic level. It has not happened to you on many different occasions, or you haven't had homelessness for a certain duration. Right? So that so, would be someone who's, say, gotten a cancer diagnosis and has lost their job because of illness? Correct. Right. And so that they, the program there is what they call the rapid rehousing program. So it's a program where you can have, uh, I think, up to 90 days of rent assistance and someone to help you find a unit to use the rent, rental assistance in and, and also give you other supports that you might need to get you back up on your feet. Um, connect you to any benefits you may be eligible for, help you with, find a job, those sorts of supports. So that's that's one one part of the system. The other part of the system addresses chronically homeless. Chronically homeless is defined as somebody who's been homeless for more than 365 days or has had, even if that's been interrupted, like they've been homeless 180, but then they were homeless again maybe seven days later, right? So essentially I always sort of shorten it to somebody's been homeless for, for more than, for a year or more. Um, if that, that person, if they have a disability, so they, they have a mental health issue or they have an addiction issue, they go to a different system. That's where we try to route that person to permanent supportive housing. Um, so that's housing where they get a rent subsidy the and um, some sort of service levels. Usually, hopefully, on-site services um, that they can um, avail themselves to. Uh, and that system is... And both systems are very strained for different reasons, um, but mostly just because mostly it's, it's just not enough units. So even if you can get somebody a rent a rent subsidy for ninety days, finding them a decent unit that helps them start over is very very difficult. Um, from a sort of housing side, we actually have done very very well in Franklin County. We have a uh, which is Columbus. Yeah, Columbus in Franklin County. Okay, we're. Our community um, is close to what they call functional zero. That means having a unit for anybody who is chronically homeless who decides they, they want to um, live in that unit. Uh, we still have, depending on who you ask, uh, 200 to, let's say, 800 units left to go. But that's, compared to other cities, enormous, like an enormous dent in that. What, what is it typically for cities around the country? Oh, I don't know for sure, but I know that here, and, and we're not one of the big cities with a homeless problem. I mean, we're not one of the bigger cities that also has this huge homeless problem, like in New York or um, uh, some place, places Chicago. in California. Ch- Chicago is probably one of them for sure. Uh, but, but we have over 2,000 units in our system. So I can only imagine what you'd need in a San Francisco or a New York. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but we're very fortunate in that we were one of the first cities to um, to to start to invest to start to really work through the HUD programs. Um, there's a, a law called McKinney-Vento. We were one of the first communities to really uh, take advantage of that and build a system for for the chronically homeless. So that's the system that that I think you enter. Um, I will say that anybody who's uh, who's uh, who's a lower income has probably entered other systems at different times and they have experiences, for example, maybe it's with um, TANF, which is a, a family program. Maybe it's experience with what we, 
we used to call food stamps. Um, maybe it's experience with Title, I think it's Title 20 for child care. Um, so, so even people who are what we call the working poor are, are taking advantage of these different um, benefits when they can. Um, so they've, there's all sorts of different systems that they've been a part of. And I will say that the biggest issue I see in any of the systems we build, if you, so, so it's all government funded. And government, um, rightfully so, sets up all sorts of rules. And it's all about compliance. And it's to make sure that you're spending the money correctly, right? So there's a fiduciary duty there. But it's also to keep people from cheating, right? right. And that on the surface makes sense. But the problem is you're trying to form a relationship with somebody. Um, and you don't form relationships if you don't have trust. And so compliance doesn't, requiring someone to fill out 15 forms in order to comply and prove you're not cheating makes it really difficult to build trust with that person. Right. So it gets in the, it gets in, that's I think the biggest issue with the system is that it, it just doesn't allow those relationships to happen easily. And that's where I think you get the stereotype of this nameless, faceless, cruel system that's just like next and doesn't really hear your story. Because the, because it's a competing stereotype, right? Because from a different perspective, there's a nameless, faceless person who's just out to scam the system, and that's what the system is predicated upon. Right. And and you're the so as a as a person who's funded by the government, I have to meet compliance. They're going to come in and they're going to look at my file, and I have to show that I asked all the right questions and checked all the right boxes. So that's what I'm going to focus on when I'm sitting in a in a interview with a potential client, not on forming the relationship. And it's going to be immediately their first impression. Oh, this person doesn't trust me. They're collecting 400 documents from me, and it's mm-hmm. and it and it's also really difficult to get all those documents. Um, especially for people who are chronically homeless because they might not even know where their birth certificate is. So getting their birth certificate alone can be the reason they don't get housing. So now you've taken this compliance issue and made it the reason they don't get housing. Okay. Wait, I want to understand this yep. because I'm I'm floored by that. I'm not sure on a given day in the level of organization in my own home that if you said you've got 10 minutes to locate the birth certificate, the original social security card, all of those things, you know, on a good day I can do that, but if we're moving things around, right, maybe it, not so. Right. And, and I've got a stable home. Correct. And you have not been living on the land for over a year right. and you don't have an addiction and you don't have a mental health issue. Uh, so put all that together. And really the case manager's job is to help this person manage all of that documentation. And then they come and they're already, if you're chronically homeless, you've definitely had experience with the system. And usually it's the prison system, but you've definitely had an experience with the system somewhere and you don't trust it. So you just continue to build distrust. And I don't know the solution to that because I appreciate the um, government's role and the things the things they need to do. But there are times when I feel like that is one of the huge barriers to really connecting with people. Because I, when you've been chronically homeless and you've been and you are addicted, some there's definitely been a trauma in your life. You've definitely experienced shame. 
those things are incredibly limiting in terms of your ability to get better. And you need somebody who's empathetic to that in order to sort of shed light on this and let go of this shame and then let you really work on your trauma. And to do that, you have to form a really authentic, trusting relationship. Um, so if your first experience with me is where your documents, it's a barrier. So this the system piece of it's huge. I also think there's so many stereotypes about what people need. This happens, I think, more so with with families who are situationally homeless. I can't tell you how many times you're sitting around designing a program and then like, well, the biggest problem is they don't have job supports, they don't have financial literacy, they don't have this, they don't know how to like. Right, so we talk about all the behaviors they don't have, and then we build a program to help them with those behaviors. But if you talk to people. They, financial literacy isn't the problem. They know finance is way better than you. They're <laughs> so much savvier and resourceful than anyone I know. This isn't about them not understanding how to save. They don't have any money to save. It's just, so so we build this. We, we just keep saying, why can't we get them to understand middle class values? Right, it's really what right. we do. They don't they understand this meritocracy right. that's going to get them from A to No, it's not in their world. And and. They can adjust once they get there. Why don't you just get them some housing? <laughs> but isn't that a form of victim blaming that we want to impose kind of, um, it's all about the the individual with th- these problems. We're going to teach you that you have to take a shower before you go for a job interview. Not that even if you get that job, you're still making a wage that doesn't allow you to be able to afford housing. Yeah, I I don't know exactly what causes people to have that response, whether it's victim blaming, whether it's just not standing in that person's shoes, whether it's not really um, knowing the profile of the people you're serving, whether it's not forming individual relationships and having that be valuable up front, right? So why don't I find out who you are before I tell you what you need? I don't know. I just know that I see that. one of the things that struck me is I went to a Bridges out of poverty, uh, Bridges out of poverty class, and they talk about the motivations of the upper class, middle class, and um, poverty class. And in the in the uh, when they were talking about people in the poverty class, they were talking about how they don't read as often to their children as people do in the middle class, and not as often as people in the upper class. And so the vocabulary that each of those groups have is dramatically different because when you reach your kids they pick up so much vocabulary and how this was a problem because um, there was a disadvantage at not having as much vocabulary. Later they talked about communication and how people in different classes communicate differently and how people in the poverty class are are much more like are much more attuned into body language because they don't have as much vocabulary and that they tell stories that aren't necessarily sequential because they haven't had um, as much emphasis on uh, writing as a kid in the middle class will who learns you know this is the opening these are three points this is the ending right so they're telling stories that feel like they're going all over the place and are disconnected and then they said that humans, all humans, when we're at class A and some high percentage of their communication is actually through visual anyway. So so in other words, we are more likely to watch body language to understand what somebody is saying than hear the words they're saying. But so I start thinking to myself, here's this person who they say is fantastic at reading body language in order to know what's happening in a room. 
but they're at a disadvantage because they don't have enough words to tell a story in the right order. Isn't it really the middle class and the upper class that's goofed, right? Wouldn't we want to learn more body language and stop worrying about vocabulary, right? Uh, So that is what I guess I think is fascinating is that we build the policy and the solutions with a lens that ignores the people we're serving, which only adds to why they hate that system and don't love participating in it is it ignores who they really are and what they're really talented at and what they're really motivated by and and isn't it true also that that language is not neutral and that elite professions part of what they do is construct their own language that keeps everybody out um I know when people go to hospitals and talk to physicians, they they feel like they're put into this patient role that doesn't get the respect, that isn't viewed as a powerful, acting, competent individual simply because medical language is unfamiliar to them. Right. Or the law or politics that that there are these professions where the language is, in fact, designed to keep people who who don't know the secret knock right. out of the club. Correct. Right. And that that's what's, again, back to the class issue, That that's what separates the upper class from everybody else. It's not income. And it's, uh, I mean, so for the middle class, it's meritocracy. It's um, how many, how much assets have you accumulated. For the upper class, it's to what club do you belong? Mm-hmm. Right. Same idea. So, you know, I I just I I don't I think that it's very difficult to build systems that are focused on the individual. But sometimes we build systems that are so unfocused on the individual that they must feel somewhat fascist to those people using it. As you were talking about people being told what they need how do we build systems that ask people right what they need right instead of presuming it yeah exactly let's let's take another break and when we come back then i want to talk about solutions right so we all just don't go home and hide our heads in despair <laughs> over this we'll be back in a moment what they tell us how they compel us at like to wonder what is true in the speeches the ignorant preaches that no one is like to be if you like what you hear please tell well everybody about us more information, links, and other great stuff, check out our website, www.heartlandwoman.com. Welcome back. We're here with Sam Schiller from the Community Housing Network. Sam, would you tell us some about 
the Community Housing Network and why its approach is uh, perhaps a little different in terms of how we think about housing and sure. the needs of the homeless. Sure. So, so Community Housing Network began in 1987, and uh, it was originally funded through a Robert Wood Johnson program. It was the program on the chronically mentally ill, and the idea was to test the theory of whether or not people with mental health, serious mental health uh, issues, could live independently in the community with certain supports. Um, and the reason that Robert Wood Johnson wanted to study this is many, many people over the 30 or so years prior to that had been released from uh, mental health institutions, from hospitals, where they had been required to be in those hospitals. They were committed to those hospitals and had no right to leave those hospitals until people started to realize how inhumane and ineffective that sort of uh, treatment of people with mental health issues was. You also had the rise of um, drugs, pharmaceuticals working more for people who needed them, and also talk therapy. So those two things combined started to convince people, you know what, people with mental illness aren't um, incurable. And we can um, treat them in the community. So they started to release people from hospitals. The problem was that local communities had no systems for treating people because they had traditionally been treated in the hospitals. And so you had a lot of people released from the hospitals who not only had pretty significant mental health issues, but also had um, no, they had lost their life skills because when you live in an institution for too long, you, you lose those independent skills. And so they ended up homeless. Uh, many of them are in jails, uh, and it was a serious problem. And so we were created in response to solving that problem. And so part of it was the housing, but part of it was also what kind of systems are best for delivering community mental health. And and so they studied both of those things through that pilot program, and that's how we got our start because Columbus Franklin County is one of nine uh, jurisdictions in the country to receive a grant. And so the Franklin County Alcohol, Drug, and Mental Health Board created Community Housing Network uh, as a separate nonprofit to be its housing arm. And so that's what we started to do. Um, and so initially we started out doing um, small buildings where we would acquire them and rehab them, four to six units scattered all over. And that was very much in response to uh, somebody has been in an institution, and so we need to offer them a place that doesn't feel like an institution, allows them to integrate into the community. So these are not group homes and that concept of everybody living together. These were actual individual housing units that people can come and go and and live independent lives. Correct. So these are not congregate living, rental units where each person signs a lease and has all the lease rights that anybody who signs a lease would have. Services aren't required and they aren't a condition of the person living there. The services are offered. So at that time they had um, what they would call ACT teams. So they had a team of professionals who would go out into the community and visit people in their units to uh, make sure that any of the support needs they had were covered, right? So how you doing on income? Uh, how you doing on uh, mental health, how you doing on your physical health, what life skill issues are, are missing for you, do, do we need to help you learn how to cook again, learn how to clean your apartment again, do we need to help you learn how to connect to people again, what are the, what are the supports that you need to remain independent? But the person is responsible for paying their portion of the rent. There's a rent subsidy, but they're paying 30% of their income towards rent. 
Uh, so it's a model that says this person is independent and they are living in their own unit, they've signed a lease, and they are free to choose to live their life any way they'd like. As long as they're not in violation of the lease, they can live here forever. But it comes with services being offered to them that are individualized for them and um, voluntary and there as that extra support because the, the mental health issue will get in the way sometimes of being able to live completely independently, but that doesn't mean you need to live in an institution. It simply means you're going to need a bridge from time to time. And so that, that was the idea at the time. And uh, we developed maybe 600 units doing that over time. Eventually, more and more people who were experiencing homelessness um, sort of at the same time that we were starting. So, so what was happening is more and more people have been released from hospitals. The first wave of people probably had the least amount of disability. So in other words, they had the most ability to live independently. Uh -huh. But as they started releasing people and, and having any sort of success with that, and as they realized how much money they saved not hospitalizing people, more and more people were released. So people with higher barriers to living independently were being released. And then it takes time before somebody really will hit homelessness or the jails and then homelessness, right? So over time, as these are being, people are being released, the homeless problem is growing and growing and growing, which means that people are going to present with even bigger barriers maybe than they would have had they not been homeless all that time because a lot of times they're self-medicating. So okay. if you have a mental health problem and you're not getting treatment, you're, you're very likely to, to, to abuse some substance. So now you've, now you've got a substance abuse problem on top of your mental health problem, on top of the physical problems that you've got because you've been living homeless so long. Right. right. So, which is nutrition. Yeah. I mean, really everything physically. Mm -hmm. People with significant mental health issues will die younger than people without them anyway. Yes. Then you add the stress of living on the land, you add the stress of using illicit substances, and, and that really accelerates physical health problems. And so at the same time, this is when HUD uh, in the in the federal government started really really funding the HUD, the McKinney Vento Act that I talked about before, which is HUD's response to the homeless crisis. And so there there becomes a lot more funding available to address the homeless crisis. And our community uh, forms the Community Shelter Board, which is Franklin County Columbus's uh, central sort of homeless expert to drive what they call the continuum of care. That is a HUD required group of people that if you want to get HUD money to serve the homeless, your local community has to put together all the stakeholders in these systems that are impacted by homelessness and come up with a community plan, present that to HUD, and then HUD will then say whether or not that plan is worth funding. And that's how you get federal funding into your community in order to serve the homeless. And that began here in the early 90s. And since we were seeing so much overlap between the people we were serving originally out of the mental health system that fit the same definition, right? So in the HUD world, it's you've been homeless and you have a, a, some sort of disability, generally mental health and addiction. We started to um, develop housing for that um, model and that funding. Well, that was a really different uh, lens at that time. 
so many people are homeless that it was right. no longer let's just do four units here six units there in order to respond to deinstitutionalization and give people an opportunity to live um, more mainstream it was we need lots of units really fast we started doing new construction okay i was yeah. going to ask you when you're talking about developing units are yep. you talking about building new units or converting yes. purchasing and converting right older originally units? the original model was what we like all developers were shorthand into ACK Rehab, which means acquire a building that already exists and do a renovation and house people that way. That's how we originally started and did a lot. Of, that's about 600 units. But then as the homeless population starts to present as one we need to serve, we start to do new construction. So we actually build brand new apartment buildings. And the advantage of that is you can build is if you you can build more of the units, right? So you can build a 60 unit building rather than just buying a 10 unit building, but you can also put community space, service space and okay. front desk staff because you're you're taking you have a population that has much higher barriers to being able to live independently and you want to be able to engage them with on-site services immediately upon them being housed. Okay. They, so, yeah. so architecture really designed to meet human exactly. needs yes. that's population specific. Yes. I just have to ask, how did the communities that you were building these units in respond yeah. to these units being built? That was the advantage, of, by the way, of the acquisition rehab, because you didn't necessarily have to get a rezoning, and so you could sort of fly under the radar. And that was okay. actually worked great, because it allowed you then to be in a lot of neighborhoods um, over time, kind of quietly. Incognito, basically. Yeah, but then but, prove okay. the model. Right? Okay. So, hey, okay. you've been living next door to this for four or five mm -hmm. years, and you, you, you really like these people they're your neighbors and there's been no issues so see it works so so there's some real advantages to that but when we did new construction often we would have to we would need a rezoning but even if we didn't we knew that we'd have to do community outreach um, and initially it was it was an extraordinary extraordinary amount of pushback so the term NIMBY not in my backyard uh -huh. we experienced that with every new project we we're very very fortunate in Columbus and that the city council at the time was a supporter of community shelter board but a huge supporter of of addressing the homeless issue we had a mayor and a city council who were 100% committed to that and as long as we went out into the community and genuinely worked with them to answer their questions, to form a good neighbor agreement, to um, address their concerns to the extent that we could through design or other uh, other building rules, uh, they would they would vote to zone that property even if there remained opposition. Um, and I think that was a huge part of Columbus's success because we knew that we would be able to do the project even if there was opposition and and it became known that that would happen so as you keep doing projects neighborhoods become more and more likely to sit down and really and really come to a win-win solution and not oppose and so it's 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 interesting even in neighborhoods where people oppose i have to say that those experiences are really good ones one everybody Everybody, no matter who you are, there are two things that are very important to you, your kids and your house, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm walking into your your neighborhood and potentially uh, threatening both of those things. And right. so I respect that people come out and are upset and have questions. And I think it's our, our job to sit down and talk to them about 
the myths and stereotypes that they may have no no easy way to have the the facts in front of them. They they're not responding just because they don't they're mean. They're responding because it's just not a common thing to know those things, right? And when so, you say their top two priorities are their kids in their home, we're really talking about the safety of exactly both. yeah the value of your home and the safety of your home and your kids. Those are huge for people. And once you Mm -hmm. get into that space, you got to give people a minute to respond in a way that is natural. I'm going to protect this. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not even taking a chance on you. I'm not risking it. This is too important. And so we would just keep meeting and just keep meeting. And we would have to repeat ourselves because people don't hear you at first when they're upset. And we just kept meeting and repeating and meeting, repeating and doing everything we could. If they've made reasonable requests, we were doing that. But it helped us form relationships in those communities, right? And then we would begin to operate, and people would get to know who we serve, and we would have champions and connection. So on the one hand, yeah, it's those are tough times when people are really mad at you, but they... <laughs> I've seen it happen over and over the same way where they turn out to be great experiences. You just sort of have to get through that initial part of it and and commit to the relationship. So commit to we're going to be together in the end of this and because we're a community. And now I will say that uh, so we had a site that we developed in 2000 um, that we had. It was on campus, Ohio State University here in Columbus, and it was on their campus. They ended up having some. Uh, university development that they needed to put where our building was and so we worked with them to get another piece of land that was very very close but to build something new instead so they could so they could have the piece of land that we were on and that experience the first time we did that community acceptance was very difficult and we spent many years um, working through issues with that group but because we did that over time we became allies when we moved the building, we had absolutely nobody opposed to us. Wow. And in fact, they came and said, you know, we, have, we need to continue the relationship and figure out how we can work more together. So it's it's really, the model has proved itself out in many neighborhoods and many people really do understand the value um, and the diversity that permanent support of housing brings. And so it's kind of a, actually a nice story. It doesn't happen so, all the time, but it happens way more often than it used to. The net effect was rather than disturbing, damaging, or destroying communities, which was the, the, the residents' fear, right. that you ended up helping to build even stronger communities. Exactly. It's exactly the story that ends up happening over and over again. That is, I think, where Columbus is, is really, really, really privileged to have been on the early end of this because we have these models that have proven themselves out over such a long time and we have communities that have watched it and seen it and can describe it. Like I said, it doesn't happen every time, but it happens quite often now where people really understand what you're trying to do and support it. Well, first of all, let's talk about the model of supportive housing. Uh, And this may be a very naive or off-the-wall question, but as I was looking at your website, and, and th- the first thing I thought was, yes, you're dealing with a population that has specific challenges, but in a sense, those challenges are not unique to that population, that in fact, all of us, through the aging process, through illness, through life, 
we have challenges to living independently, even though that's what we would all want to do. And of course, what we find is that if we can create ways of supporting people and have them living independently, it's much healthier for them. And it's much cheaper in the long run for everybody to have them live independently. Yes, I think that's the part that I think I was talking about that earlier, where this isn't just, there's, there's, this is a great solution because it does both things. It is humane, but it is also um, the best use of our funds. It's also, so it's effective, it's efficient, and it's humane. It hits the heart, it hits the head. It's a great solution. And I think it's important what you said about we're not that different. I mean, you can talk about aging and you might be having the same conversation. And, and I think one of the things that I try to focus on and the people that we serve is it's the separation that we've had from people with mental illness, you know, because there's been such a long time of history where our perception is that they're different, that they're dangerous, that they're uncontrollable, and they have to be separated from the rest of us. And that is that has done such great damage to the people that we're serving. And we're always focused on, you know, it's the focus is never on, is it our attitude towards people that have created this problem? Right. And it, and it feels sometimes to me like it is our attitude towards people that have created the problem. In fact, aren't, aren't people with severe mental illness more likely to become victims? Absolutely. Rather than perpetrators. Correct. Yes. And there's nobody who would say, Oh, you have cancer, so you right. deserve to be homeless, right. right? We treat diabetes left and right, and yet we're all drinking big gulps. And, <laughs> you know, so yeah. that's, the, that's the piece I'm trying to, like, that, that sense that the difference between us, there isn't one. It's just that we've labeled this, this um, illness that you have in a way that separates you. And if you're wealthy... Uh, and you have schizophrenia, you don't show up in my housing. Um, If you have depression, you're much more likely to get treated because, frankly, there's a pharmaceutical that can make a lot of money doing that for you. But schizophrenia, not so much. So there's so much tied into this. Like we were talking about class and race and gender earlier. It's, It's all those things intervene and overlap when you add mental health to that. You have a bias after bias after bias when I look at the people that are in our housing it tends to be the mental health diseases that aren't treated the same way as they would be perhaps in the middle class it it, it's it's just it's a I could go on and on but essentially I think my main the main thing that I it strikes me is that we've spent a lot of time separating this population from what we think of as the general population. Uh, and and if what you we were to, think of as yeah. legitimate illness. Exactly. Right? And I'm often struck by the difference between what we think of as the brain and the mind. That if these same people had a brain tumor, right. we would be there responding with compassion and empathy and, in fact, outrage if people with brain tumors were turned out and mass right. on the street to yeah. fend for themselves. But because we define schizophrenia as of the mind and not of the brain, we assume that, that people have control of or right. as though they want to be schizophrenic and therefore they're Correct. bored with depression, you know, just right. get a better attitude. Yep, yep. So I just try to help 
focus on this vision of not separating ourselves. Like if we could get to a place where we start to understand that this um, is an illness like any other illness. I mean, if you even think about behavioral health being separated out from primary care. Right. So, But all of primary care is, is behavioral health. You know, it's how, what are the behaviors I can change to help heal myself? My doctor yesterday asked if I wear my seatbelt. Correct. Right. And it was on the form to be checked. (laughs) But behavioral health gets separated out. And because we separate out, there's just, there's just a, we, we haven't, we have a lot of, lot of years where the stigma of mental health has been an imprint that will take a long time to overcome. And so I always try to remember to mention that, you know, sometimes you just step back and ask, what is your perspective of this person informed by? And it's thousands of years of misunderstanding of, of what um, mental illness is. Sam Schuler, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. You've given I, us a, a really riveting and thought-provoking discussion here. Us. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you having me. It's my pleasure. Thank you. We'll leave you today with this thought from Marie Curie. Nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. Thanks for listening. Be well, and we'll see you next time.